0: God we celebrate your grace this morning because when we look at the world and we look at our lives really it's all the story of your grace or your grace before the time before the world began before time began and setting your heart on a people for yourself or your grace in time as you lovingly and patiently promised a Savior. And God, your grace most especially in sending your son Jesus to live and to die and to rise so that sinners like us, God, could be brought back into fellowship with you. God, in the grace that we've sung about this morning, the grace of that future vision, that future picture that you've already showed us, Where millions upon millions in every tribe and tongue and language praising the Lamb who was slain. Lord, we sing about your grace now because we are going to be singing about your grace forever. Lord, everything we have comes to us through your grace. And so we celebrate you this morning. We worship you, God. Now, we just want to understand who you are. We want to see you. We want to meet with you. God, we want everything else in our life to just sort of slip away, and we want you to take front and center stage. God, meet us in this place. Meet us through your word, and would that your Holy Spirit would apply your word to our hearts. God, we are done. We are done with just learning facts. We want to know you. We want to have you so, Lord, we ask that you'd meet us here. In Jesus' precious, holy name we pray and worship. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> As you're taking your seat, I want to invite you to open your Bible to the book of 2 Peter. Uh, we've been tracking through this little letter over the last few months, getting towards the end, but not quite yet. And today we're going to be looking at 2 Peter chapter 3. Verses 8 to 10. If you're new to the Bible, uh, 2 Peter is way over towards the back. It's way, way over towards the end. And so if you're new to the Bible and you need a little help, that's where you'll find 2 Peter. And this, today, like I said, 2 Peter 3, 8 to 10. I'm going to read it. And if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to read along. If not, you can look at the screen and follow along that way. Second Peter 3, 8 through 10. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved Be exposed. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Last year, I watched a documentary about the space shuttle, the Challenger. Uh, Over a three year period, the Challenger launched 10 times. And nine out of those 10, everything seemed to be fine. Uh, This 10th launch had some extra anticipation. Because for the first time ever, a school teacher had been invited to join the crew, the six other astronauts, to launch into space. This was an exciting time, an exciting day for, in the life of, of Americans. But what the school teacher and the six other astronauts did not know is that there had been signs in some of the previous launches that this shuttle was not actually safe to take off. Now, there had been documented facts which some of the people had tried to bring to light that if they kept launching this spacecraft, it was going to eventually turn out bad. But the facts were overlooked. They were swept off to the side. And so unfortunately, sadly, in January of 1986, the Challenger launched its 10th and final time only to explode a few moments later. There are different reasons why we overlook things. Sometimes we just have tunnel vision. Uh, Sometimes the truth is inconvenient. And sometimes we just don't want to see what is clearly, obviously, right in front of our faces. But I think we would all say we, we know what it's like not to embrace fully the truth that we actually see Uh, as tragic as the story of the challenger is the bible actually teaches us that so many times the reason that life doesn't make sense to us is because we are overlooking crucial facts and it's not just that we're overlooking facts life doesn't make sense to us because we are overlooking god The most important thing in the universe is pushed off to the side, lives on the periphery, is pushed out to the margins of our lives, rather than being central, forward, focused. And many times we live our lives overlooking God. I would say this is probably one of the most important needs in our world today, that we would see God again, that we would see Him for who He is, that God would be acknowledged as God. Uh, this little letter, 2 Peter, is winding to a close. What we're going to see this morning from Peter is two things. One, Peter is not going to let us leave here today without seeing God. But here's the second thing. Peter wants for the God who we embrace, who we see, who registers into our life to actually be the true God, not just a God of our own imagination. He wants it to be the real God, the the, the God of the Bible, the the only one who exists, that he would actually be the God who we see and love and embrace. And here's what we're going to find out, guys. That God... The God of this Bible, the God who has revealed himself to us, he is so much better than we ever could have imagined. He is so much better than any of our wildest dreams. And so today I have to entitle the sermon, Five Things We Must Not Overlook. Five Things We Must Not Overlook. The first is this don't overlook the eternality of the Lord. Don't overlook the eternality of the Lord. As Christians, we, this is what we believe. This is sort of the, the core central truth of what we believe. We believe that God sent his son Jesus into the world, that Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus then died for sinners on a cross as a substitute for the penalty that we deserved. And then Jesus rose from the dead, and then after rising from the dead, Jesus ascended back to the right hand of the Father. But here's one more thing we believe, one more important central truth that we believe. Before Jesus ascended, he promised us that he would come again. And where we left off last week, we left off seeing that there were and there are people who mock and who scoff at the idea of the second coming of Jesus. Uh, This is how you could summarize their mocking and their scoffing in verse 4. If you want to look right back up to verse 4, this is sort of the summary of what the scoffers say. It says, They will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So this mocking, this scoffing, is aimed at the second coming of Jesus. And that's where we pick up this morning in verse 8. That's why Peter says this. Here's the first thing he's he's trying to make a case. And he says, verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord... One day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So Peter is telling us, hey, here's one truth that must factor into the equation. Here's a truth that you must not overlook. That with the Lord, time is not an issue because he's not bound by time. God is eternal. Now for us. Time presses in on us. Time seems to slip away from us. If you were to actually do this equation that Peter's talking about here, I don't don't think he's talking about this This is actual how it works, but he's trying to paint the big picture for us, right? If you just take 1,000 years, multiply it by 365 days, you get 365,000 days. So it's like Peter's saying, hey, one day in the life of God is like 365,000 days in the life of humanity. What's his point? His point is that there's only actually one timeless thing in the world, and that is God himself, right? We feel cramped. We feel time pressing in. We feel how elusive it is. You and I know that we have to invest our time wisely. We have to be careful how we spend our time, and you and I know that eventually time's going to run out on us. But none of that is true for God. Time is not pressing in on him. He is not feeling the need to hurry up. God is boundless and timeless. I was trying to think of how to understand this this week. I was trying to think of an example, and it's really hard because for us, you know, time is just this concrete thing that never changes. But I thought, you know, if we could just take a different resource that we might be able to understand how this works for God... And so, while time is something that we can't manipulate, it's not something that we can change or doesn't uh, expand or contract, something that does do that for us is money. Right? We understand inflation. Now, as much as you and I think we understand inflation right now, I want to tell you a little story about a time and place that in inflation was astronomically worse. Than you and I could imagine. That's right, Germany in the early nineteen hundreds. Just listen, listen to how crazy this is. In nineteen fourteen, the exchange rate of the German mark to the American dollar was about four point two to one. You got that? Nine years later, it was four point two trillion to one. Imagine being a trillionaire and being able to buy a pack of bubble gum. It was said that waiters had to climb up on top of tables and every half hour they had to announce new menu prices. Listen to this. The price of a loaf of bread went from 250 marks in January of 1923 to 200 trillion in November of the same year. They had to to take wheelbarrows to work just to get paid, and they had to spend the money before the day was over because their money wouldn't be worth anything by the next day. Peter is saying, guys, what money is like for us is just this piece of paper that can expand and contract with inflation, saying, like, that's what time is like for God. It's not real. God is outside of time. He's not bound by it. God is the one who invests time with all of its value. And so, who cares if a few more thousand years go by before Jesus returns? What is that to a God who is eternal? What is that to a God who has no beginning and no end and has happily existed forever. And so the first thing that Peter wants us to see this morning is that we should not overlook the fact that God is eternal. Second, don't overlook the faithfulness of the Lord. Don't overlook the faithfulness of the Lord. Verse 9 begins. We're going to slowly, over the next three points, we're just going to slowly work out verse 9. So we're just going to start with the first clause there. Verse 9 begins, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count Slowness. I'm not sure what your definition of slow is. Maybe it's when you get behind a driver like me who occasionally looks back and realizes there's a line of cars behind me because I'm actually driving the speed limit. Uh, maybe, maybe you are from up north and you wonder how in the world do these people from South Carolina get anything done with their slow pace of life. Right, I don't know what your definition of slow is, but this is what we have to acknowledge. Slow is always Relative. Peter wants us to consider that if there is waiting involved with the fulfillment of God's promise, it's not because God is slow. It is actually, by definition, impossible for God to be slow. God is always right on time. Uh, in music, music, one of the most important factors in music is time. Every, I don't know if you know this, but every song, every composition has a meter, has a time, has a pace, has a tempo. And so when a group of people are playing together, one of the most important things is that everyone's playing on the right time. But when, when the timing is off, it means that somebody is either playing too fast or too slow. And here's what Peter is trying to key us in on this morning. If it feels to us like God is off time... It's actually the fact that we are off time. God is always in sync. God is always setting the tempo. If we are not clicking in with God, it's not because He's slow. It's because we are impatient. It's not because God is unfaithful. It's because we are selfish. God is weaving together trillions and trillions of people, places, events, dust particles, water droplets, could it be that He knows how life works better than us? And so when our timing is off of His, could we learn to trust that He is right on time? The paradigm for seeing and learning to trust God's faithfulness and His promises is the first coming of Jesus. You know, it was at least a few thousand years between the first time that God promised a Messiah in Genesis chapter 3 to when Jesus was actually born in Matthew chapter 1. You know that? There's a few thousand years in between that time, at least. But I love how Paul puts it this way in Galatians 4, 4 to 5. Listen to how beautiful this is. This is almost like poetry. Paul writes this. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Thousands and thousands of convergences of people, places, societies, inventions, biblical prophecies. And Paul says, at just the right time, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son into the world to save us. And so when you're wrestling with God's faithfulness, when you're wrestling with God's timing in your life, what do you do? You look back to the gospel. You look back to the fact that at just the right time, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son who did everything that was necessary for our salvation, who faithfully fulfilled all of God's promises. And we see in the gospel that the Lord is certainly not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. So we've seen the eternality of the Lord, the faithfulness of the Lord. Third, this morning, don't overlook the patience of the Lord. Don't overlook the patience of the Lord. So again, we're going to focus on verse 9, but this time we're just going to go a little bit further. Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. The patience of God might be one of the most overlooked things in all the universe. Uh, this is my opinion. My opinion is that my generation is the most impatient generation who has ever existed. Right? Fast food, high speed internet, same day shipping. Right? We want what we want and we want it right now. We understand well impatience, not feeling like the line is moving fast enough. I was reminded uh, this week, last Sunday we went to the Pelicans baseball game as a church. It was a great time and I was reminded while we were there of the story of Brian Snicker. Brian is currently the head coach of the Atlanta Braves, Uh, but Brian Snicker was also the first manager for the Myrtle Beach Pelicans, which is really cool. 36 years, Brian was a coach in the Atlanta Braves system. 36 years before he actually became the head coach of the Braves. And then it wasn't until his 42nd year that he got the opportunity to win the World Series last year with the Braves. Think about the maturity and the strength and the resolve that it takes to wait and wait and wait and wait your turn. But guys, that is nothing compared to the patience of God. God is the most mature being who has ever existed. The reason that God is able to be so patient is because He is filled with infinite strength. He is filled with all the qualities to the Infinite degree that it takes to wait and wait and wait and wait and never grow weary. But this is what I love about the patience of God. See, you know, t- when we tend to think about patience, we tend to think about waiting for something, right? Waiting for something to happen, waiting for something to come about, waiting to get through the grocery line, right? Our patience is typically about waiting on some thing to happen. But there's actually a deeper level of patience. There is actually a, ma- a more mature aspect to patience, And it is when we continue to bear with someone who consistently falls short of our expectations. We remain committed to someone who consistently breaks their promises. We continue to pursue and love someone who has rejected us so many times. What Peter's talking about when he talks about the patience of God, he's not just talking about God waiting on us. He's talking about the fact that God bears with us, even though so many times we have been unfaithful to God. I think the reason that the patience of God tends to be overlooked is because you and I are oblivious to how often we are the recipients of it. Consider, for example, God's patience in our lives before we come to Christ. How many times did we sin against the Lord? How many times did we go our own way? How many times did we throw out the stiff arm yet he kept pursuing us, kept inviting us into his family. And then consider God's patience in the actual process of coming to faith in Jesus. How many times do we have to hear the gospel before we actually put our trust in Jesus? How many times are we invited to repent before we actually turn to him? How many times did we sleep through the sermon? How many times did we reject his truth And yet He still came after us, still ran after us, and then He conquered our hearts, and He loved us into His family. And then consider God's patience even after we come to faith in Christ. How slow are we to change? How slow are we to follow through on our commitments to God? How slow are we to actually obey him and do what he says? And yet he lovingly, gently cares for us and matures us in his mercy and patience. And this is how I see God's patience probably in, in, in this way more than any other way that instead of casting us off when we turn to other gods, turn to worship other idols, instead of casting us off, instead of divorcing us, even though He certainly has the grounds to, He has promised us that He will not cast us off. And He has made provision for our wandering In that he sent his son to die for our future sins. So that even as we turn, even as we wander, his heart is still for us. His heart is still coming after us. And he patiently invites us to repent and turn back to him again. And I would say, if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, if you're here and you know that you have not trusted in Christ... Would you consider God's patience even now that His arms are wide open to you? That even though you've pushed against Him, even though you've neglected Him, even though you haven't accepted His invitations right now, He is pouring out His patience to you and saying, Come, 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 come into my family. Even though you don't love me, I love you. You know what we see in God's patience? we learn about God's patience, is that God is actually far better than we could ever have imagined. That He is so much more kind and loving and caring than any of us could ever be. If God's patience towards us is... A reality. Here's a few ways I feel like we should respond to God's great patience. One is to honor his patience by never having hard thoughts of God. What do I mean by that? I mean, we should never conceive of God as a power-hungry tyrant who smacks us and wounds us every time we Sin against him. The Bible says when God revealed his own name to us, he said that he is slow to anger. When you and I think of God, we should have soft, warm, affectionate thoughts of a father who welcomes us and is patient with us and is kind towards us. A second way that we should respond to his patience is that we should honor his past patience with present faithfulness. If God has been so good to us, if he has been so patient with us in the past, let's give everything we have to committing all of ourselves to him right now. And then third this morning, if this patience of God is true, we ought to honor his patience by cultivating an environment of patience In this church. This is how Paul puts this in Colossians 3, 12 and 13. Paul writes this Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. What does cultivating an environment of patience in our church look like? Well, it looks like a couple of things. One, it looks like we don't ever pressure anybody into anything. Another thing it means is we refuse to gossip about people's failures. And then I think a final thing that it means is that rather than casting people off, the first sign of their failure, at the first sign of offense against us, at the first sign that they're a slow grower, rather than casting them off, we patiently pray and bear and love and forgive. Why? Because that is what God has done for us. Oh, that we would have a culture of patience, an environment of patience at Palmetto Shores. Now we're ready to unpack all of verse 9 together. Kind of been slowly moving through it. Now we're going to get the whole thing. And so forth this morning. Don't overlook the mercy of the Lord. Don't overlook the mercy of the Lord. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The number one thing that people overlook when they mock and scoff at the second coming of Jesus is the merciful heart of God. The reason that Jesus has not returned yet is not because God is dragging His feet, but because God has opened His arms. But The reason there's still time is because God is merciful. There's a few important phrases, two important phrases we need to see to understand this world in which we live. In the first phrase... Peter tells us that the Lord is not wishing that any should perish. Not wishing that any should perish. A simple definition of mercy is not receiving punishment for a crime that we have committed. Peter is saying God's heart is to show mercy. God's heart is that none would perish. And God has displayed His mercy for us so clearly in the gospel. How has He done that? How has God shown us His mercy? We said it, I want to say it again. God made you, He made me, He made this world and He made it good. And God gave us everything we needed. And yet every single one of us turned our back on God. We've tried to live life without God. We've tried to go our own way instead of trusting in Him. And so if God had wanted to, He could have given every single one of us what we deserved. He could have let us just run right on into death with no way of escape, no way of salvation. God would have been absolutely just to do that. But as it says in Ephesians 2, God is rich in mercy. And because God is rich in mercy, he sent his son Jesus into the world And Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience, a life that you and I should have lived, but didn't. And then Jesus died on the cross for sinners. He took the punishment that you and I deserved. And then Jesus rose victorious three days later because death cannot hold life down. And that is the good news of the gospel. But why is it good news? It's good news because it reveals God's heart for mercy. It shows us that God has actually condemned His own Son so that you and I could be brought back into fellowship with Him. That you and I, in a sense, are let off the hook because Jesus hung on the tree. A few years ago, it was right before Allie and I got married, Uh, I got pulled over and was issued a ticket I um, wasn't speeding, but uh, you know, it's one of those weird stories. Pulled over, got the ticket, but I was given an opportunity for mercy. All I had to do was pay a little money and spend the whole Saturday in this class, and I got the opportunity to not have to deal with the ticket. Now, that is a kind of Mercy but it was a mercy that I had to pay for. The wonder of God's mercy in the gospel is that because God gave his only son and his son was punished in our place, we receive mercy and we don't have to pay for it. Jesus paid what we owed what should have fell on us fell on him and so we receive mercy as peter says here the lord is not wishing that any should perish but that leads to the, the second important phrase here the second phrase teaches us what is the only appropriate response to god's mercy what's the only appropriate response to this display of God's wonderful mercy? Well, he says that all should reach repentance. Now, if you go online this afternoon and you do a little Google search of repentance, you will be led astray by the internet. Sure, sure, you will find some things. If you type in definition of repentance, click. You will find some things about remorse, You will find some things about regret. You might even find some things about changing your mind. Uh, Even in Merriam-Webster's. Merriam-Webster's gets real close. Merriam-Webster says this, to turn from sin and dedicate oneself to the the amendment of one's life. Merriam's almost there. But if we follow the definitions on the internet of repentance, we will not experience true repentance, and we will not experience the mercy of God. What's missing from all the definitions on the internet about repentance is God. Repentance is turning to God. Repentance is running to Jesus. It's not just feeling bad for the things that we've done. It's not just trying to sweep the bad stuff out of our life. It's not just changing our direction and fixing how we act. Repentance is going back home. What does it take to go back home? (laughs) To go home. Don't overlook that the reason Jesus hasn't come back yet is because God's heart is full of mercy and he's opened up his arms and he's given us time to turn to Jesus. Let me be really clear. What that doesn't mean is that God has given us time to get our act together. It does not mean that God has given us time to prove that we are worthy. It does not mean that God has given us time to sweep all the bad stuff out of our life. It means God has given us time to run back into His arms through Jesus. Repentance is not a replacement for what Jesus has done for us. Repentance is how we receive what Jesus has done for us. Sadly, I think too many of us have a false conception of repentance. I would think that there's many here who maybe think that repentance is an opportunity at a redo. Maybe you think that's what Christianity is about. It's the opportunity maybe at a second chance. Uh, Maybe this is how we falsely conceive of repentance. You know, you've probably been in this situation before. You're in school, you take a test, and you know, the whole class just doesn't do well. You know, even your normal A students, they make a B on the test. You know, you know something's gone wrong. And so the teacher comes in and says, Guys, my heart is full of mercy for you. And so I'm going to give you guys a chance to retake the test. Is that how we view repentance? Is that what you and I think? That repentance is? It's this opportunity a second chance. It's an opportunity at a redo. Well, here's the problem, guys. It wouldn't have mattered how many redos God gave us. We would have keep, kept failing. It wouldn't have mattered how many retakes we took. We would never have met His standard So then what is repentance? Repentance is coming home. Repentance is having the humility to turn to Jesus and say, I need you. I trust you. I come to you. I follow you. Now, I'm sure somebody here is going to say, wait a second. That just sounds too easy. And I would say, no it it might actually be the hardest thing to do in the world why is that why is that because it takes utter humility to say not only have i done wrong but i don't have what it takes to fix it and so then to turn to jesus for mercy turn and say I'm not going to trust my own strength, I'm not going to trust my own righteousness I'm not going to trust my ability to retake, redo, retest but I'm going to turn and trust Christ that is humility, so today if you're here and you haven't trusted in Jesus haven't trusted in Jesus, what is keeping you from coming home? What is keeping you from running to God through Jesus? This is my prayer. I would would invite you to pray this. If if you're not a believer, I would invite you to pray. Ask the Lord. Say, Lord, don't let my pride be what keeps me from coming to Jesus. Soften my heart. Give me the humility that it takes to open up my hands And receive your gift. And commit my life to you. It's not easy. It's impossible. Unless God grants it. It requires utter humility. Here's a few things that this passage teaches us about God. One is this. God's posture towards people in the world who do not follow him is not a fighting stance. It is open arms. And so here's the heart check that we have to do. Is my posture towards people in the world who do not follow God, is it a fighting stance Or is it arms open? Are you aware that Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard? And the reason that Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard is because he was a friend of sinners. Jesus embraced and hugged and loved people who did not follow God. His best friends were gluttons and drunkards, and so he was accused by association. Is our posture this or is it this? And then here's another thing to think about. If we believe that 2 Peter 3, 9 is true, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should be, reach repentance. If we believe that's true, then we must be committed to getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. We must be committed to taking the good news that there's a God of patience and mercy who's given His only Son. We must be committed to getting that message to people who are perishing. And just so you can know, something about my heart, this is something that I am praying for this church. I am praying that God will raise up more men and women from this church who will say yes to cross-cultural missions, who will say yes to giving up their lives, to go tell people about this Jesus and about this merciful God who are perishing. And here's a practical thought. If you're a parent in the room or you're a grandparent or you have some influence in a child's life in this room, let's start telling our kids that if they want to grow up, and become missionaries that is a that would be an awesome career choice for their life that would be a wonderful decision maybe at some point when your kids are starting to you know kids pick up on things right they know what you go, you know they know where you go every day you know they know kind of what you're up to they know that moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas go to work and stuff and maybe you would just ask have you ever thought about Becoming a missionary? And then, I don't know, maybe every six months or every year, we might look at them and say something like, you know, if you grew up and left home to go places to tell people about our merciful God and our patient God and about His Son, Jesus Christ, and you left here... We would miss you dearly, but we would be so proud of you, and our hearts would be filled with joy that you had answered God's call to go tell the good news of his mercy and love in Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Let's start making that a viable option. Encouraging and praying that God would raise up men and women from this church. Now, finally, I think Peter is intentionally, thoughtfully adding a but in verse 10. He's told us about God's merciful heart, he's told us about God's patience. He's told us about how God desires that we turn to Him in repentance. But lest we think that we can play God. Peter adds verse 10. And so finally this morning, don't overlook the day of the Lord. Don't overlook the day of the Lord. Verse 10 says this But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. While God is extremely patient, there never has been and there never will be anyone who is more patient than God, there is a day when God's patience will run out. And it's not because God couldn't, if He would wanted to, continue to extend His patience, but it's because in His sovereignty He has told us that there is a day when the door for opportunity to repentance will close. Next week, we're going to talk more about the day of the Lord. But there's two two key things I want to focus on from verse 10 this morning. That the day of the Lord, this day of the Lord, this final moment where the door closes on repentance, it will come like a thief. And then the last word in verse 10, we will be exposed. I want to focus on those two words for a moment. Um, When Allie and I lived in our first apartment right after I got married I had a really bad habit of not locking my car you know it was like years and years and years went by and it was no problem it was no big deal nothing ever happened but then one night after I had played golf the day before I left my golf clubs in the car car unlocked came out the next morning my golf clubs are gone the thief had come in the night now, if somebody had said to me, hey, man, a thief is going to come to your house tonight and steal your golf clubs, I would have locked my car, and I probably would have taken my golf clubs inside like I was supposed to. right? Peter is saying, hey, God is so patient. But there's a day coming, and no one will expect it. It will come like a thief. You don't expect the thief. That's why, it, they, are, that's why they get away with it, because you didn't know they were coming. And then the last word, verse 10, exposed. I just want to consider, consider guys, consider, please consider that this God who invites us to repent, who welcomes us with mercy, who invites us into his family is also a God who knows our thoughts, who knows everything we've ever said under our breath, who knows how much we have focused on ourselves, how little we have focused on Him, how many times we've hurt other people. This is a God who sees right through us. And Peter is saying, that day that will come like a thief will be a day of exposure. Now, I had had many people tell me over the years, that I should be locking my car. And I didn't know exactly when the thief was coming, but I could have been ready for the thief. And see, guys, that's why we don't cower in terror at the idea of the day of the Lord. No, 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 no. We see this as a kindness. The fact that God has told us that it is coming and that He has told us that it will come like a thief. What kindness of God to let us in on it beforehand. We might not know the day, but we can be ready. And we can be ready in two ways. One is that we are ready when we have our eyes fixed on Jesus. You know how less surprising it will be when Jesus breaks through the clouds? If we've already got our eyes set on Him, it will be so much less frightening and surprising when the one whom we love, whom we've set our hearts on, comes breaking through the clouds. That won't be as scary and surprising. And then here's the other thing. That day of exposure doesn't have to be a day of shame. It doesn't have to be a day where all these things that we've tried to hide, that we've tried to cover up, are all of a sudden now out in the light. Because when we come to Jesus, we're kind of outing ourselves already. We're confessing it. saying, Yeah, I'm terrible. I've done these things. It's not a surprise. And when we come to Jesus, the Bible says, and confess our sins, it says that we are covered, clothed with Christ. Covered in the blood of Jesus. That that day of exposure, it won't be a day of shame for those who are covered in Christ. And so, that sin that you're so afraid to confess, why not come out into the light with it? Now, clothed in Christ, rather than it being unveiled on that day. Here's the question that I want to just leave you with this morning. Simple question. How will we not overlook God? How will we not overlook God there's a few things that God has given us because he knows how easily we miss the most important things one is this gift of gathering with his people when we come here you know this isn't a classroom there's like a really good chance you didn't learn anything new today it's possible but why are we here it's not just to learn stuff It's to have our gaze refocused, to have our eyes reset back on this great and glorious God. And then maybe even a step deeper than that is the gift of community, that God has called us to live our lives with other Christians. Because guess what? We get out of whack. We get out of line. We start to think and do and say things that are not with God in view. And we need somebody who cares enough about us to say, Hey, that's crazy. That's off. That's not in line with the Lord, and we need that. And then, one of the most precious ways that Jesus has given us so that we won't overlook the most important things is the Lord's Supper. That Jesus has given us a continual reminder of God's patience and faithfulness and goodness and mercy and love to us. So this morning, I want to invite you to take the communion elements that you have there, and go ahead and open those up. And I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter eleven. Paul gives us not only the what of the Lord's Supper, but he tells us the why. Of the Lord's Supper. So, looking at these elements, looking at the bread, looking at the cup, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this morning, holding this bread, holding this cup, we are celebrating the faithfulness of God. We are celebrating that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son into this world to be a savior for us. We are celebrating, certainly, we are celebrating the mercy and the patience of God that He kept pursuing us, kept coming after us, even when He could have cast us off. He loved us into His family. And this morning, as we take the bread and take the cup, we also remember the day of the Lord. That just as certainly as Jesus came the first time, He will come again. Take and eat now the bread and the cup. Lord, we worship you today as a God rich in mercy. God, I just pray that you would genuinely help our hearts to see these wonderful qualities of you. That we wouldn't overlook your, your patience or your mercy or your faithfulness. wouldn't overlook how awesome you are that it would actually be alive in our hearts, that as we interacted with one another, as we make decisions for our lives, as we think about our futures, Lord, that you would be right there, front and center. It would see you, embrace you, cling to you, remember you. God, we're so thankful that you came after us. And we just ask now that as we feel your mercy, as we feel your goodness, as we feel your faithfulness, that it would lead our hearts to repentance, Lord, that we would run home. It's in Jesus' name that we worship and pray. Amen.